Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Dan Labatt, co-editor of New Politics, who has an article in Jacobin discussing the Democrats' new so-called better deal, is with us on this installment of Jacobin Radio to discuss his view of the Democratic Party's feeble attempt to win back the working class. They call it a better deal, and Dan calls it a bullshit deal. We then talked to Jeremy Bendick Kamer, professor of ethics at Case Western Reserve. Jeremy calls Donald Trump an authoritarian arbitrarian and says those who fear Trump is flirting with fascism are misreading him, and by doing so, they're also misreading neoliberalism. While Trump may ride fascist undercurrents when he wants, he is at core an arbitrarian, and Bendit Kamer makes the case that his arbitrarianism is the threat of the 21st century, where neoliberal rationality dissolves any public good, including accountability and truth. And finally, on Jacobin Radio, Dr. Adam Gaffney, physician, writer, early stage researcher, and healthcare advocate, is with us to talk about the historic demise of the Republican efforts to repeal, skinny or otherwise, and replace Obamacare. He also explains why the tepid revival of a public option the Democrats are proposing won't work. Dr. Gaffney believes truly universal health care is a human right, and we'll ask him what realistic paths are now open to finally achieving it. Welcome to this installment of Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, very pleased to have Dan Labotsk with us. He's the co-editor of New Politics, and he's the author of many books, many more than we can even mention. I always like to mention the Troublemaker's Handbook, but he has a new book that has not yet come out on Trump and the future of the left. That's going to come out in France. And another one that will come out in September here on what went wrong, the Nicaraguan Revolution and Marxist analysis. And I've invited Dan to talk to us today about the Democratic Party's feeble attempt to win back the working class with the launch of their new slogan and program called A Better Deal. After being battered by Sanders and beaten by Trump and shown to be uninspiring, the polls are really pretty amazing. The majority of people don't know what the Democrats stand for. So this caricature of a new program or slogan that anticipates the 2018 midterm elections leaves out so much. And that's what we're going to talk about, including, I guess I should just say, universal health care, free education, and even most of the things that the working class needs. So so Dan has an article in Jacobin. You can find it online at jacobinmag.com this week, and it's called A BS Deal. And so we've invited Dan to talk about what Schumer and the Democrats program misses and why. And with all of that, welcome, Dan. Hey, nice to be with you. Thanks for asking me. Thank you. Well, I guess we should just begin with Chuck Schumer's new program, which was presented in an op-ed piece last week, earlier in the week, rather, what Chuck Schumer had to offer was pretty clear of substance, I thought, but maybe we should just go over it for our listeners point by point. And there were essentially three proposals. And the first one was job training, but not in terms of like giving workers money to and giving money to educational programs, but tax credits to businesses to retrain workers. So let's begin with that one, shall we, Dan? And maybe first your overall impression of this proposal. The proposal, uh, what word do you use? You know, it's uh, weak, anemic, pale, pathetic. Uh, (laughs) it, It says virtually nothing to people. We have millions of people who are unemployed, people who are underemployed, people living in the precarious world. I just saw my granddaughter in L.A. in the precarious world of surviving on multiple jobs, you know, trying to keep a roof over their head. And what does this have to say to these millions of people on, on the job training thing? You know, what's a good job that somebody might want if they lost a job in industry or they, you know, maybe a nurse? Well, you got to you have a bachelor's degree. You probably have to go to nursing school for a couple of years. It's going to take lots of time, lots of money, and it's uh, clearly something that would be a great kind of program, even for workers in their 40s, maybe even in their 50s to become mm-hmm. nurses. But uh, you can't do it in the way that's uh, proposed in this program. The job training thing, 
And we saw it in the crisis of the 70s and again in the 90s. But the job training thing very seldom works out for workers, very seldom leads to people really improving their lives. I mean, all the articles for years about the former steel workers working in McDonald's. I teach older students at the Murphy Institute and the City University of New York, a labor school, and uh, they're smart people, they're terrific students, but a lot of them in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and it would be quite unrealistic. Are they going to go out at the age of 50 and suddenly be able to compete in the world of technology jobs with young people? I mean, it requires... Tremendous support, not just financial, but really kind of social and psychological support for people. There's nothing more devastating than losing your job. Right. Uh, nothing. It takes away your income. It takes away your identity. It takes away your sense of dignity and self-respect. So what does this speak to that? Not at all. I mean, it's sad. And then on the other side of it, because it is this whole tax credit to actually, so it gives money to businesses. And as you said, it's going to mean nothing for the precariat. And and you actually hint that part of this is because the Democrats don't even know what the working class is today. They have no sort of sense of the precariat or, you know, students drowning in debt or, you know. No, they're without, they're totally clueless totally clueless about what to do. Absolutely. The crumb offered on top of that, you know, is to, okay, go for the $15 per hour minimum wage. So, you know, what does that do? I'm going to say one more word about the job training thing. Not only, you know, say tax credits to employers. So there's another way of increasing inequality by by helping the rich and not helping the, the working class very much. But, you know, in an old, in another time, a few decades ago, there might have been the word union might have been mentioned in there and say, if we're going to retrain workers, there could be joint programs. You know, many labor unions and employers have joint programs for lots of things mm. like job training never happened. So, as you say, unable to offer anything there, they talk about $15 an hour. And they don't even say anything about supporting unions or bringing them back or the role that unions have played. I mean, unions just are absent. Right. They're totally absent there. And of course, that's quite amazing. If you think back that while nothing was ever done for unions, you know, in Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, all had on their platform, at least, of their deal, whatever the deal was called at the time, they had all on their platform the notion of labor law reform, of creating something like card check recognition or other schemes to to give unions a, a stronger hand in dealing with employers. Mm-hmm. Totally insincere. They never put it at the top of the agenda. They never pushed it through Congress. Well, at least they had it there. Uh, the $15 an hour thing, well, it's great to increase workers' wages. And for many workers, $15 an hour in many places is practically doubling their wages. The pressure of the campaign supported by unions, workers' centers, many workers' uh, own organizing efforts has had a big impact in raising uh, wages to $15 an hour in, in cities and some states across the country. So that's terrific. But um, it's really just kind of thrown in there as a the one thing where they show some awareness of something happening in society, but they don't say we're going to have a national program, a national bill that will require everyone to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour and make that the law of the land and guarantee a cost of living increase or, or to say we look forward to raising this to an actual living wage of maybe 25 or $30 an hour over time. I mean, there's nothing like that in there. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the next thing or the third, you know, sort of plank in this new better deal, apart from tax credits for training to businesses and the $15 minimum wage, is essentially some kind of control on monopoly by bringing down prices for prescription drugs or, you know, at least being able to negotiate for that. Is that? Well, I think a lot of people obviously uh, receive pre- prescription drugs, need them, uh, people young and old, especially older people who need these drugs. But when you think of the uh, 20 million and people uh, who remain uninsured, the current attack on the Obamacare, which could lead to maybe 40 million uninsured. There's no talk there of we need to expand Medicaid to all, or we need to have a single-payer plan, or we need to have a national health care system, which gives everyone in America the right to health. Health care is a right. There's nothing that speaks to that sense whatsoever. So, again, I think it's a pretty pathetic program in, in health as well. I had something about the the op-ed piece that he wrote in the New York Times that really struck me is if you read it, you know, this was clearly written to appeal to white workers. There's nothing in it. And anybody writing about labor who was slightly left of center 
would have at least put a sentence in there saying, you know, the modern American working class is black, white, and Latino, millions of immigrants from around the world, and this working class needs to all have their rights protected and their lives improved. One sentence like that, nothing like that. Right. Because... Uh, they don't. There's some fear of alienating those white workers. If you were to mention that we stand, you know, could have had in there, we stand for Black Lives Matter. We're opposed to Islamophobia. We believe in defending immigrant rights. You know, we believe in sanctuary for immigrants or something. You can't imagine them putting that in there. Or even uh, recognizing, so with, as you said, uh, Dan Labatt, who the working class is today. Right. And of course, the working class is much more diverse than it's ever been. The increase of the numbers of women and immigrants, uh, black and Latino workers in the workforce, you know, depends on what part of the country you're in, of course. But in in most parts of the country, the workforce is quite diverse. It's not your grandfather's or grandmother's working class. It's it's a new working class. Mm. And uh, they don't, they're not aware of it at all. So let's move to the kind of larger question then, which is really why the Democratic Party is so feeble. And I think you had a whole host of other adjectives that go from pathetic to weak to everything else. And Corey Robin even calls it the party that wants to die but can't pull the plug. But why do you think, and I know you've thought a lot about this, Dan Labotz, that it's unable to present itself in a way that can actually attract voters and let let them know what their views are, especially outside of the very rich or the upper middle class and in the better off suburbs, which is where they have mostly targeted the last few campaigns. And I think, you know, Schumer, when I saw the headline in the New York Times op-ed, I thought, okay, this is going to be at least the Democrats acknowledging this. But what do you think is preventing them from putting forward a more attractive program and image? Well, I think that, uh, in a way, you alluded to it, which is that going back to the 1970s and certainly by the 1980s, you had the turn from the industrial working class and the beginning of the turning to voters who were going to be professional and middle class voters in the suburbs. And, of course, many people in the suburbs are really working class. But there's a different self-conception of those people. There's a different status that people have if they're defined that way. But, you know, the Democratic Party turned from the unions. It turned from the working class. It turned to become a party oriented towards professionals. And that really fundamentally changed its character. The other thing, of course, is the tremendous connection to high finance. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you read about uh, how uh, Bill Clinton... Uh, was chosen to be president, you know, and he's invited by the Goldman Sachs bankers, by Rubin, to a dinner, and they have a dinner with this guy, and they say, wow, yeah, Clinton, he looks pretty good. We'll make him the candidate. That is, the New York banks anoint the candidate. The candidate then makes the New York banker the secretary of the treasurer, the head of the uh, economic council. That kind of thing has gone on for decades now. It went on with Clinton, went on with Obama. It's now going, it's taking place now with Kamala Harris, Mm. who has, you know, is invited to the Hamptons to um, meet the big funders and the uh, media in the Hamptons. But that's the other thing, that the party is so closely tied to high finance and sees its election as so dependent on the big money to control the media and to manipulate voters. I think those are a couple of the fundamental reasons. Well, but Corey Robbins has got it wrong if he thinks the party is going to die or prepared to die or hopes to die. It is a party that hopes to live and it hopes to revive. It's going to make every effort to do so. And I think there's a lot of reasons to believe it could be successful. But in that, Dan Labatz, you know, there's a recent poll that uh, Sean King discussed in the New York Daily News and shows that Trump and Pence are way out in front of everybody else and the Democrats and Republicans All of them are grouped together, but none of them are really decidedly ahead. And given, you know, maybe this will change after this skinny repeal failed and some of the stuff that's going on inside the White House, who knows? But to your point, the Democrats, you say, want to win, but they're not doing anything that's very convincing. So how do you see that? Well, I think that, of course, Trump has learned how to completely manipulate the news, and he has the help of Fox News, plays a tremendous role in promoting these candidates, promoting the president and the vice president, and they dominate the news headlines. If you watch uh, Colbert, I mean, Colbert will be every night about Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is every day and all day at the head of the news. (laughs) And I think that that has a 
tremendous impact, the fact that they are the dominant headline, that they're the dominant. But the other side of this is, what are the Democrats doing to make news? What are they proposing? What action are they taking? When do we ever see the Democrats proposing? And, you know, Trump goes out and speaks to rallies of tens of thousands, even though he's now president, and rallies his troops. And in a certain sense, Trump puts himself, in his demagogic way, puts himself forward as the leader of a mass movement. It's not really quite a mass movement, but he certainly has millions of strong supporters out there. And he goes out and rallies them as if he's rallying them to the cause. Uh, The cause is really simply his staying in office. But the Democrats show nothing comparable. We don't see anything that, that gathers I don't know, Susie, what's gained your attention about the Democrats recently? Well, of course. First of all, in the entire first part of the Trump presidency was their disbelief and their willingness or their desire to blame Bernie Sanders on the left. And even the fight for 15 for undercutting, you know, Hillary's fight for 12, you know, and and so to blame everybody who challenges them from the left and to move ever closer to the centrist. And you saw it in the by-elections as well, where they put a ton of money into the sort of blue dog kind of Democrats and didn't give any money to the Sanders type Democrats. So, Dan, we only have about two minutes and you are in DSA and that's been growing explosively. And yet coming up to 2018 and 2020, how do you see this contradiction within the Democratic Party itself and what should people be doing? Well, I think the most important thing to do is to organize the resistance. The term's almost been taken over by the Democratic Party, but it has a glorious history, and you know, going back to the idea of the resistance to the Nazis in Germany. And we should have a resistance here, but it has to become bigger, bolder, more confrontational, prepared to engage in civil society. The most important thing is the size and the power of a movement in the streets. The second thing is that uh, within the Democratic Party, it's very clear, say from the Canova election in Florida, you know, they'll send in everyone to crush uh, someone who was with Sanders in the left. I mean, it's just quite amazing when you think of what are they thinking? The hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, particularly of young people, but of people of many ages who came to loathe the Democratic Party because of the Debbie Wasserman Schultz attack on Sanders and manipulation, the way that the indignities with which Sanders was treated, those And those people now hate the Democratic Party. If the Democratic Party were to win them back, it would have to make tremendous efforts to hold on to them. And also the many black voters who who are not prepared to support Hillary Clinton, the many women who are not attracted to Hillary Clinton. I think the job of those of us on the left in an organization like DSA is to put forward the alternative of build the movement and to build, uh, even if you run Democratic Party candidates, the progressives or socialists in the Democratic Party, to make it very clear, if they lose the primary, we don't support the corporate candidates. We are not loyal Democrats. We're disloyal Democrats. We will only vote for them if we think it advances the movement. Dan Lavatz, thank you so much for that. And for you, the listeners, you can see his article called A BS Deal that's in Jacobin and on their website this week. Dan has a new book that's coming out in September on what went wrong, the Nicaraguan Revolution and Marxist Analysis. He's the co-editor of New Politics, and he has a lot of other books and a new one on Trump and the future of the left to be published first in France. And Dan joined us right here in California today. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Thank you so much. And don't go away. We'll be right back. I'm very pleased to have Jeremy Bendit Kamer with us for the first time. He holds the Beamer Schneider Professorship in Ethics at Case Western Reserve. That's in Cleveland. And he was also a legal observer during the 2016 Republican National Convention. He writes a lot about ecology, and he writes about anthroponomy, and he's also writing about Trump. And we're going to talk about that first, but he writes for hyperallergic efflux on the conversation. And right now he has an essay or think piece, let's call it, on Donald Trump, whom he calls an authoritarian arbitrarian. And while many fear that Trump flirts with fascism, Ben Dick Kamer 
clarifies that by misreading Trump, they're also misreading neoliberalism, and that's something we really want to talk about, and that while Trump might ride fascist undercurrents when he wants, at core, Jeremy says he's an arbitrarian, and he makes the case that that arbitrarianism of Trump's is really a threat for the 21st century, where neoliberal rationality dissolves any public good, including accountability and truth. So with all of that, Jeremy Bendit Kamer, welcome to Beneath the Surface. Thank you very much, Susie. Well, let's just start with He's Arbitrarian, this essay that you've written, because I think it's, you know, it starts out with exactly the right tone. So let's hear your take. My take started with reading comments to the effect that Trump is a fascist or a neo-fascist from people whom I admire, and particularly Judith Butler, and trying to put this together with my sense that it wasn't historically accurate didn't fit the philosophical ethos that I associate with fascism and wasn't capturing what I saw as a partial appeal of Trump with a part of American culture that I think uh, responded, you know, really positively to him. And so um, when I put this together in my head, I started trying to think of how I could understand Trump according to what I'm going to call arbitrarianism in a minute. But at the same time, how that could also explain why people might see him at times as a fascist and why he would clearly court fascist undercurrent. So anyways, my basic thought is this: Trump is a particular kind of authoritarian. He's an authoritarian that works really well in the white settler economy of American culture. I'll try not to use all that lingo, but that's how I understand it. And he's an authoritarian who's arbitrary. And what that means is that he reserves for himself the ability not to have to hold any ethical principle at all, or even what we might think of as an unethical principle, but say, for example, a fascist principle or a party line or et cetera. So the idea is, is that authoritarianism in Trump is found in a particular stance that gets to say I without having to appeal to any kind of authority outside of itself to validate its, its claims. And so I call that arbitrarianism. Yeah, I think that that's accurate. And mm-hmm. I can also see how people mistakenly read it as fascist, especially when he says, I am your voice, leave it up to me, I can do this. And it's always I, I, me, me. It's never, mm-hmm. I think, as you were going to say, you, you, you. But how do these go together, I guess, the authoritarianism and the arbitrarianism? Well, I mean, you can imagine kinds of authoritarianism that appeal to, they appeal to some principles, say hereditary monarchy, right? So there's a, there is the idea that there's some figure that is able to command obedience of various sorts over all sorts of people. If you ask why, there's a mythology told about this person that actually links the person to a higher principle, say a d- divine descent just to give a really hackneyed one from history books. An authoritarian arbitrarian has jettisoned the move to having a privileged relationship to this outside authority. The idea is is that the very presence of anything that you should be accountable to is an affront to the sole authority of this person's ego. So what you get then is something that's clearly arbitrary, because there's no way that you can hold it accountable. All the, the, the authority comes from the person's volun- whatever the person voluntarily thinks they want, um, whatever serves their interests. But it's authoritarian because there's no sense, uh, there's a sense that you're supposed to more or less follow this person's decree. And so I think that, I think there's, a, there's something infantile in it, which of course people have been talking about in a long time with, with relation to Trump. But it's this idea that should you say me or I or I want, that it should just get done. And I think that there's a very deep part of American culture, um, almost a Wild West mentality in American culture, it's part of settler colonialism, that, you know, that actually responds quite deeply to this idea that, you know, at the end of the day, it's the sole person who decides their own fate. There's no other authority outside of them. 
and, you know, people should just deal with it. Do you think that Americans love authority figures? Because I think you could probably argue that there's a contradiction in Americans Mm -hmm. who have a sense, you know, a democratic sense, and on the other hand, trust leaders who they think will speak for them, and and they exist side by side. But I wonder if you think that they're in contradiction. And just a little further on that, do you think, yeah, that Donald Trump himself is aware of his arbitrarianism, or he's just so in the moment that it doesn't occur to him? Yeah, so the first question, that's a really great point you make in the beginning. And I, I feel, you know, I feel that with this entire thought piece that I very quickly get into waters that are really outside of where I feel like I've done lots of, had lots of study and experience. So I just want to, like, give a, a caveat to that. But my hunch is that people who are really well-versed in the psychology of infant-child relations probably have a lot to say to how this contradiction works. I think there's something there about in some people's minds, of wanting a kind of adult figure. It's a non-adult in terms of, like, responsibility, not a, yeah. not a good parent, but a kind of parental figure that is able to model and run cover for this arbitrary and authoritarian impulse and part of our culture. And so it's, it allows you to both kind of hide your own behavior on a micro scale behind this person And it also allows you to try to manage some of the contradictions of the fact that you simply can't have a society that's arbitrarian. It tears the society apart from the inside. That's where I want this to go, because on the one hand, fascism has been bandied about ever since the 30s and mostly inaccurately, but Mm -hmm. it's it's a convenient demonizing of Mm -hmm. anybody literally from left to right, as we've seen in in the media who have no sense of history. But on the other hand, you write that it's simpler to deal with fascism than it is with arbitrarianism, and it's a real threat, you say. So maybe you could just elaborate on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, this line of thought came from me wondering why so many people I admire and frankly, people that I'm active politically with would go so quickly to the fascist line when it just didn't line up for me. There's no doubt that Trump is courting fascism, fascist undercurrents in this country. There's no doubt about that. But Trump himself is doing something more wily um, and self-serving. So the thought is, is that I have a more complicated thought that has to do with a watered-down version of anarchism. Maybe we can get into that later. But the basic thought I think that's most squared away is just that, look, if you do have a fascist, at least from a moral standpoint, you have a very clear opposition. It rallies all sorts of definite, decisive action. It's extremely urgent. There's basically, I try to stay away from military imagery, but there's a moving target to a a fascist. The problem with arbitrarianism is that it gets at something that is increasingly part of the fabric of our world. This is the point about neoliberalism, right? So arbitrarianism, to me, is a quite logical extension of capitalism, and in particular of neoliberalism, right? Um, And there, there there were writers in the 19th century who kind of analyzed this from a more philosophical standpoint. But, but basically, arbitrarianism fits in a culture that is willing to give up any norm for profit, return on investment, however a situation sees benefits to the particular forms of individuals, agglomerates, or groups that are involved in a strategic situation. So arbitrarianism fits that kind of culture. And um, we live in that culture. It's a culture that I think is also, to some extent, infected. Uh, parts of the left. It's, it's a very hard culture to deal with. It shapes us in all sorts of ways. So if you're dealing, if you're, if you're facing someone who's actually an arbitrarianism and who is basically using and manipulating fascism in all sorts of ways to his advantage, including letting himself get called a fascist so that he can easily have a counter-reply and so that he can create chaos and, and kind of deflection, then if this is your situation, it becomes really hard to kind of hold the person accountable and figure out exactly what you're aiming at because you're looking at something that's like a fog. (laughs) And you're also to some extent looking, and this is the second part, I'm sorry, this is complicated, but you're also to some extent seeing a vague reflection of yourself in that fog to stay with the image of water. And that's what I think is really difficult about Trump's arbitrarianism. There's something about it that you you can't get your hands on it easily. It's It's not easy to get a clear movement around it. It's constantly cutting and going in all different ways. And at the same time, 
there's something vaguely familiar about it, and maybe for some people, too familiar. Let me ask you this, Jeremy Bendit-Kamer, because yeah. this is just fascinating. But you mentioned fog and chaos, and we certainly have had a lot of that, yeah. and, as well as drama. And do you see this as uh, deliberate in some way and deflecting from other policy mm-hmm. uh, okay, issues? Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. So this gets back to the question I wasn't able to answer earlier, and I'm glad we cut around it. We can come back to it, which is, you know, kind of what's my sense of Trump's awareness of this? Um, Let's call it formation. I don't want to call it an ethical formation because it's precisely not that. (laughs) But um, I think it's closer to a kind of name for something that's a pathology, but I'm not a psychologist. It feels that way to me. So anyways, my, my answer is I don't think it's deliberate in the precise sense of the word deliberate. Um, I think it's instinctual and has worked for him. The way I would understand Trump's consciousness of this is the way that someone who is a highly effective bully or manipulator or abuser or user is aware that certain things work. That's my sense of it. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know the person. I haven't looked deeply into the you know, person's biography beyond what is more or less part of public discourse. But that's my sense. It would be hard for a real arbitrarian to be highly conscious of their position, someone who's as instinctively arbitrarian as Trump, because you'd have to start asking yourself questions about coherence and questions about what you're doing it for. Mm. And this is also, I think, goes beyond what, you know, I think you say in your essay and that Colbert was made famous for, which is this idea of truthiness. But this is this is much more than that. Yeah. And in fact, I think it helps explain the appeal of truthiness or post-truth discourse or alternative fact discourse, right? So because the problem with the belief, well, you have to make, you make claims around it. It can be negated. It can be subject to contradiction. There's logical implications of it. Sorry, even this is philosophy speak, but, you know, it's much easier to be, many people have referred to the Frankfurt book or essay on the show. It's much easier to be a shoulder than a liar, right? It's much easier to undermine the status of truth than to have to deal in half-truths and lies. I think that the arbitrarianism explains why anything that can hold you accountable is potentially a threat. And, of course, truth discourse, the attempt to, to have good, conscientious, responsible journalism is a threat. All of this stuff is a threat. I, I should just say really briefly, I come at this anarchist concern from having been involved with anarchism. So I won't go into that because you only have a couple minutes. But I come out of it out of a situation of hanging out with a lot of anarchists, being involved at times with anarchism, and being disturbed with some of the views that I've seen. And I'll just put it really bluntly. I became worried. I don't want to put blame on anarchists or something. But I became worried that some of the views that I was seeing in anarchist communities, only some of them, were eerily similar to the arbitrariness of Trump. Um, And in particular, the rejection of norms, the rejection of truth or truth discourse or the attempt to try to get at truth at times, the rejection of ethical positions. And so I started, I don't think that in any way are anarchists and and Trump identical because there's too many fundamental moral or ethical principles in anarchism, particular egalitarianism and and freedom, Mm -hmm. autonomy. But in any case, I became worried that that. There's elements of anarchism that are close enough to what the kinds of arbitrarianism that Trump is pushing that it might be hard at times for anarchists to call Trump for what Trump is, because it might involve calling in to doubt some of the things that have seeped into anarchism. Okay, and um, in the so last, that's a simple answer. Okay, yeah. and in the last 40 seconds, how do you see <laughs> organizing against this? What kind of, you know, what would be effective in your view? I, I'll just be really simple. I have moved from anarchism to a form of radically egalitarian civic republicanism that's based on a deep understanding of public goods and the belief that there are forms of collective self-determined law, um, including custom, doesn't have to be through the legal system we have, that to which we should hold each other accountable because it allows us to see each other eye to eye without being afraid. 
I want to thank you so much for joining us with all of that. And, Jeremy, let's have you back. I want to talk about your theories on anthroponomy (laughs) and more on protests and all of these other, you know, suggestive things that you've uh, brought out in this uh, short think piece. And I want to thank you so much for writing it and for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much, Susie. appreciate it. Thank you. And Jeremy Bendit-Kamer is the Beamer Schneider Professor in Ethics at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, and he's written a lot. Just look him up. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. We're now going to hear an interview that was recorded for Jacobin Radio on July 28th with Dr. Adam Gaffney. That's one day after the historic failure of the skinny repeal of Obamacare in the Senate. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we are with Dr. Adam Gaffney. I'm so thrilled that he's with us. If you were awake, and you probably were, the Senate in the very early hours of Friday morning rejected this new scaled-down so-called Obamacare skinny repeal. And that was the Republican attempt to repeal just parts of the Affordable Care Act. And really, this is a historic defeat. It derailed the Republicans' more than seven-year campaign to dismantle health care, as Paul Ryan once let slip, to destroy health care. And we'll have to see whether uh, Trump is at all damaged by this. He should be. But I'll leave that for the weeks to come. But Adam Gaffney, who joins us now, is a physician and a writer. He's also an early stage researcher and healthcare advocate. He's part of the Physicians for a National Health Program. And he has a brand new book that we're going to review at a later date called To Heal Humankind, The Right to Health in History. And that's just published by Rutledge. And it's really on the history of the human right to health idea. Dr. Gaffney writes that his mantra essentially is if we believe in a right to health for all, then we need a universal single-payer health care system for all. So we're going to talk to him today about all of those things. And welcome, Adam Gaffney. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, great. I'm really pleased to have you. And I should also just alert the listeners that you have this spate of articles in Jacobin, in these times, many, many other places, but they do things like kind of demolish the notion that the public option will lead us uh, in a creeping way towards single payer. But let's let's just begin. The skinny repeal fiasco and the ongoing assault on Obamacare. What's your view on, on these attempts and, and what it might mean? Well, it is simply a devastating defeat of the Republican agenda. This isn't about Trump. Trump didn't have really his own health care idea whatsoever. This is about the defeat of the Republican health care agenda. And it really speaks to the bankruptcy of their vision. Um, Their bills were enormously unpopular. They polled terribly. And they activated citizen activists across the country. Um, You know, there were numerous reports of all sorts of progressive activism, both in the Capitol, uh, people sort of chasing senators down in the recess. Um, And really what what all that activism did is frame this as a very clearly moral issue, a matter of life and death. And we can never know why individual senators ultimately change their vote or not in in particular votes. But what we do know is that the progressives did a very good job of framing issue. And I think that contributed to the defeat of it. Yeah. And I, I think that's absolutely right. And and we'll leave to the future whether or not Trump is harmed by it. But it kind of exposed how empty the Republican Party is. So this was a very grassroots effort. I mean, I know physicians who went to Washington. I've read numerous reports of all sorts of activities that went on um, because it sparked in people, I think, a real sense of what um, the Republicans wanted to do, which was basically to boil down the health care of the working class and pour it into the bank accounts of the well-off. And that's what most of the bills did. Now, in terms of what's going on with the Democratic Party and what you mentioned with um, a better deal, You know, this really speaks to the fact that the fight over health care is going to be the next big struggle within the Democratic Party and for the country as a whole. Uh, You know, Democrats, liberals, leftists united against the Republicans on the issue of repealing Obamacare. We really did across the board. Uh, But 
once we move beyond that, now that Trump care is six feet under where it belongs, <laughs> um, there are divisions. And so we're going to need, uh, for those of us who believe in a universal health care system and in single payer, um, we're really going to need to hold Democratic uh, legislators' feet to the fire when they say they believe in universal health care, when they say they do not believe that people should be uninsured. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I think the whole resistance to Trump care could actually push this argument forward is that activists made it very clear that it was totally unacceptable to leave 50 million people uninsured, as Trump Care would have done, ultimately. Mm. But if it's unacceptable to leave 50 million people uninsured, how is it acceptable to leave 28.6 million uninsured, <laughs> exactly. which was the case last year? So let's just go there, because in your articles, you go over the history of health care reform. And literally, you know, it's been tried since the 30s and stymied. And so what the Clinton's novel way of dealing with that was to concede that there will never be some form of universal health care and instead try a market approach, which is what Obamacare is, and borrowed from a Republican approach. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about why that was chosen and why it won't work. Well, we know it won't work because it hasn't worked, and it's had seven years to work. So, you know, I think a lot of us didn't think it would work, and I should say it helped a lot of people. I'm not saying it, 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 it did help a lot of people, but it didn't work to address the main problems of the American healthcare system, uh, in particular uninsurance and underinsurance. Um, and then when looking at it from a historical perspective, um, there has been a rightward shift within the Democratic Party on healthcare from the early 70s to 2010, right? So, you know, early 1970s, Ted Kennedy had a bill. Um, that was basically a single-payer universal health care bill that would have really established a national health insurance system. And then you fast forward a few decades, and the Democrats have more or less embraced a Republican bill, Romney Care, which itself was very much inspired by a Nixon proposal from the early 1970s. But what do we see now is that pendulum is going the other direction again. Over the last few years, there's been a, a re-embrace, if we can call it that, of Medicare for all, of going beyond a market-based system. Um, and we're seeing that, that was, I think that was in part, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders' relative success last year certainly contributed to that, but it's now moving past that, and we're seeing it embraced by rising numbers of Americans, uh, but also by more and more legislators. And also, I should say, Adam Gaffney, by physicians themselves. The AMA used to be the sort of bulwark of opposition to any form of health care. Now, more physicians want single payer than uh, these so-called market-based uh, options. But why then, or, or maybe you could just very briefly talk about the public option, which is being presented as some kind of alternative or way to slap the markets into shape? The, the public option... You know, many pe there's a lot of well-meaning people who believe in it, but it is not going to solve the basic fundamental inadequacies of the American healthcare system. The public option is a way of injecting a public competitor into a private marketplace and hoping that by holding the private insurer's feet to the fire, you will somehow solve the main problems of the American healthcare system. But that's not what it's going to actually do. For instance, it's going to do very little for the uninsured. Again, as I mentioned, 28.6 million people. Uh, it's going to do very little for people who get their insurance through their employer, which is you know, the majority of people with private insurance. Um, all of those people are still going to have these rising deductibles, rising co-payments um, that are squeezing people's finances and making them avoid going to the doctor. Um, and it's not going to bring down overall costs. It's not going to make the system more efficient. It may help some people. It may bring down premiums to some extent for marketplace plans or for people who buy into that, depending upon how it's designed. But the structural inadequacies of the market-based, fragmented U.S. healthcare system will, will no way be solved by a public option. Nor it's pretty is weak it, sauce. Right. So, and you're also saying it's not a backdoor to single-payer. Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, if you look at Medicare Advantage plans, for instance, mm. um, are basically privatized Medicare plans, and they've long been uh, used by insurers um, and sort of uh, that have used it to sort of extract resources from the Medicare system by a variety of cherry picking um, and um, other sorts of tactics. So, not necessarily would it lead to a single payer system. In fact, it may simply stabilize the status quo and cost us great no amount of time. You know, years of uh, we're going to have to really get um, behind a public option. By the time we see it happen, uh, we're going to have lost a huge amount of time and a lot of suffering will have accrued as a result.
I'm speaking with Dr. Adam Gaffney, and as I mentioned, he's a physician and a writer and, and a healthcare advocate. He instructs at Harvard Medical School, and he's a staff physician at the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Cambridge Health Alliance. And we're now going to get to the nitty-gritty, which is to talk about single-payer, which I think is a terrible name. Most people have no idea what it means, but it's been revived in a sort of Medicare for all. But you said that, you know, now is a moment where there's growing support for this. So let's talk about what it really is. Right. Well, it's a good it's a good question, and I think the moniker Medicare for All is helpful in this regard uh, because Medicare is something that people are familiar with. Uh, so what we're talking about is national health insurance, a public program that ensures everybody in the country, in my opinion, that should be regardless of residency status, immigration status, um, that provides a full spectrum of comprehensive benefits and does not involve cost sharing. We do not think you need to have deductibles and co-payments. And by doing that, you'd essentially eliminate uninsurance and underinsurance. Now, what it is different, um, in a way, it is different from a system like in the United Kingdom. We're not necessarily talking about nationalizing hospitals or making all physicians employees of the state. So it's not uh, fully socialized health care. It's more socialized health insurance. Uh, okay, and those and you, are its main provisions. Do you see, like, in the U.K., there is an, a specific tax for the NHS? So, you know, when people keep talking about how would we ever pay for it, but if we have a Medicare tax, you would just see that being somewhat broader? Is that is that how it would be paid for? There's a number number of ways you could pay for it in terms of taxes. And in my opinion, progressive taxation is the best way to help fund a health care system. That means that people pay into the system according to what they can afford, and then they get out from the system what they need in terms of their health care needs. So I think progressive taxation is the best basis for a single-payer system, at least in the long run. Um, and as you said, we already do this, and we already have Medicare. Medicare functions in many respects as a, a somewhat of a single-payer system for people 65 years and older. So we know how to do it. It really isn't rocket science. Um, It's not brain surgery. Uh, It involves incorporating lessons from uh, abroad as well as from our own system, um, like Medicare. Um, You know, it is very important to emphasize, though, that Medicare is not perfect in this country. And when we speak about Medicare for all, we need to be speaking about improved Medicare for all, uh, because it has certain deficiencies. It doesn't cover, for instance, dental care, long-term care, and it still imposes a lot of -of out-of-pocket costs. So we're talking about getting rid of that stuff. Okay. But we're also, Adam Gaffney, talking about healthcare delivery. And I wondered if you could actually then, you know, get to what you think would be the kind of health care program that you would want to fight for. And, and what does that look like? Would it be getting rid of, for example, the entire way that medicine is practiced here, not just in terms of its market pr- approach, but fee for service and the sort of anarchic care so that there's a lot of duplication of efforts? Can you talk a little bit about how you see that being addressed? Yes. Well, I think, first off, a lot of the waste that we currently have is due to the profit motive. We would certainly be talking about getting rid of for-profit delivery, so for-profit nursing homes, for-profit hospitals, for-profit dialysis companies that, you know, actually have a record of having worse results and worse quality. They would need to convert to nonprofit status to take part in a national health program. We know that they do an inferior job. In terms of how you pay physicians, it's a complicated question. Um, In my opinion, you know, you can pay them in a few different ways, and it matters less how you pay them than how you fund the system, which is through the public payer. Um, you know, there's a lot being said about fee-for-service. I don't think we need to totally revolutionize the way that we reimburse healthcare providers. I think the more important thing is to cover everybody up front. But the reason I asked it, Adam Gaffney, is because it, it- seems to work against having some form of coordinated care because, you know, there's there's a lot of tests that are ordered from various people that are sometimes unnecessary, often duplicative, and there's really no sort of ombudsman in charge. I had Suzanne Gordon on the show some few months ago when she got her new book out on uh, the VA, where she talked about that as being a kind of model for the kind of care that was integrated and holistic. And I wondered if in, you know, the Physicians for a National Healthcare Health Program that you are part of, if, if there is some sort of discussion about what the actual care would look like. 
There has been. I mean, for instance, in our most recent proposal, which which I was involved in drafting, uh, which sort of outlines what a system would look like, we do talk about um, the move towards integrated health care systems in which physicians would be salaried and, and which would be responsible for the full spectrum of care for their patients. Um, again, I think that the evolution of the delivery system can proceed more gradually as we revolutionize the funding system. I would agree with the guest you had that the VA does a lot of things very well in this regard. Uh, you know, even the fact that it has a single medical record so that everybody uh, is completely aware of one patient's care and tests and all and, and that sort of thing. I mean, that's something we can think about on a national level as well. Uh, so there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the VA. There's a lot of lessons to be learned from other countries in terms of delivering more integrated care. Uh, and that can certainly be a part of a universal health care system. And in fact, it would be um, facilitated by the implementation of such a program. Well, we have only a few minutes left. It always flies right by. But Adam Gaffney, you're not just a physician and a researcher, but you're an activist as well. And so you think a lot about that. And so I guess the question there is we're at a a historic moment where there's a groundswell for uh, some form of single payer, and there's a tremendous amount of resistance. So how do we get from here to there? Do you have some ideas? I have a lot of ideas. Um, We may not have time for all of them. Yes, I mean, there is a groundswell, as you said. And I think one point that's worth emphasizing here is that in many ways, Medicare for all, single payer, is really the only option left, right? So Trump care is basically dead, let's hope. As far as we can tell, it's very dead. Um, And the Affordable Care Act lives on, but we all know that it is not met, is not basically fixed the main problems of of, of, of our healthcare system. What is left, Medicare for all is all that's left. In terms of how to get there, we need to work on multiple levels. We need grassroots movements. We need to inform the public um, and and, and really make clear what this would do for them uh, and what it would do for their personal finances and for their personal health care. We need to push legislators to make them sign on now to either the House bill or the Senate bill, which should be forthcoming by Bernie Sanders sometime soon. And when we do that, we will have all of our ducks in a row once the balance of power shifts. And when that happens, we will be ready to see this done. Can I just finally ask, because we only have 10 seconds or so, do you think the Canadian approach, which was province by province, shows it would work here? So let's say California somehow would manage to pass this bill and then other states would as well? You know, it's a commonly argued point, and I don't have the answer to that question. What I think the best approach is is to work on multiple levels at the same time and see who gets there first. Uh, ultimately, the goal is the same. We all want a national health care system, and there are certain advantages to doing it at a national level. We don't leave behind conservative states. Everybody gets included. There's multiple advantages of it, but I think we can work on both levels at the same time, and whoever gets there first, we can take it from there. Adam Gaffney, thank you so much for joining us today. He's a physician and a writer, a researcher, and healthcare advocate. His new book is To Heal Humankind, The Right to Health in History. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.